Hello and welcome to the Wind Thieved Hat. I'm delighted to be able to mark this, the 21st episode, with a very special conversation with poet, playwright, performer, graphic artist and designer Inua Alams. He is, without doubt, one of the most inspiring and eloquent creators I've had the pleasure of speaking with so far. There's a huge amount in this short conversation. Inua talks about his childhood in Nigeria and the black privilege he only became aware of later on. He talks about finding inspiration in sources as diverse as Terry Pratchett, Tolkien and 90s West Coast hip-hop. He tells me why his plays are poems which have gone wrong, why he never really gets writer's block and he also makes a compelling case for the similarities between a poem and a basketball team. He is witty, wise and hugely talented. He is Inua Ellums. Hello, Inua. Welcome to the Wind Thieved Hat. Hi. Hi, Richard. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. I'm very well. How 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 are you keeping? How's uh, how's lockdown been for you? Uh, I'm okay. Lockdown has fluctuated from both extremes of emotions, from utter despair and hopelessness to um, joy and freedom, from um, having too much to do to having nothing at all, nothing at all to do. Um, it's it's been everything, but it's it's finally reached its end somewhat, and um, I'm happy that the world is slowly coming back into itself. And I say that with commas everywhere because a couple of things we realized we could have changed institutionally drastically in our lives before lockdown, which certainly we did. And now we're forgetting those things. Yeah, absolutely. And how have you found it? creatively have you there's i've personally found a bit of a lack of stimulation there how how has it been for you i wasn't i was overstimulated and lost and confused and disorientated um i wasn't able to write anything and anything creative i was able to write as okay that that requires some creativity i was able to write a whole bunch of essays and just move them out of the way but i've only written one thing new in all of this in terms of um, a piece of work, which is fictional or sensorial or anything like that. Um, so it was, it's been difficult um, creatively, immensely yeah. difficult, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're alone there. I mean, on, on the plus side, one, one thing I've found is more time to explore cultural stuff. I've been having a good old dig around the internet and I've, I've encountered the work of people that maybe I wouldn't have come across uh, yeah. before. I said I, I mostly binge watched um, The Wire. Right, great. Um, um, Breaking Bad, another classic. Another classic, and then El Camino, which is the film made for some of the characters in Breaking Bad, or just one, just rounding off that story. What else have I watched? Um, and a whole bunch of movies. I've started a Sunday night film club with some of my really some of them were acquaintances some of them were really close and we've just become this really good network uh, of just re- really great guys all at the top of their games and various things that they do and um what we do is 
we watch a film mostly on Netflix. We've done a couple of things on Disney Plus, but we just hit play at the same time. And then um, after we get on Zoom and talk talk to each other and chat about the film and take the piss out of each other. Um, but yeah, so watching series and watching films with friends is how I've got through lockdown. Great. And I, I, I saw a tweet um where you uh, it implied you'd been checking um, uh, Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You. Yeah, Michaela's an old acquaintance, an old, actually, no, she's an old friend. I say acquaintance because we rarely see each other, but when we do, right. it's just it's just good vibes. Um, so I, I visited her in um, the office when she was writing I May Destroy You, um, like a year, okay. maybe a year ago or so. Um, and I knew she was beavering her way of working at it, and I check in on her here and there. Um, but just seeing the co- the combination of the work, the hours put in, um, has been hugely inspiring. It is the work of um, a clear, unfocused mind, a sustained um, imagination, willing to question itself, to push itself, to go further, deeper to be aware of so many rules of screenwriting, to break all of them confidently and subtly and softly. It's a depth charge of a series. I've loved watching it. I can't wait for the final two episodes. And then just to deeper meditate on it. A lot of the cast are either friends of mine or acquaintances that I've, that I've worked with. So I'm, I'm rediscovering um, new strings to all the abodes, all the ways in which they've manifested Black British identity and all the politics and subtleties of that has been a huge learning just to watch it and to see and the conversations that it spawns after is is incredible. It's incre- like um, th- dramatically, the last two episodes, not much happened, but emotionally, yeah. there were leaps and bounds, and oh, there was just so much that was said and unsaid. I've loved mm. it. Yeah. Yeah, I have you been, been watching it? Yeah, I have indeed. I, I I've really enjoyed it. I consume quite a lot of drama and um, <laughs> often of late, but I think that, that I've not seen anything that is able to sort of dance around the moral complexity mm. of how we live now with 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 such kind of delicacy. You know, yeah. it's um, it, it it avoids falling into. Um, uh, the kind of the, the moral path that you might expect or predict. There's a, there's a there's a wonderful sophistication to it. I think. Yeah, absolutely, and it's so, it, and it wears all of this so lightly. It yeah. is just its thing, and to go from writing like intense slapstick comedy to this, it's it's it's. Yeah, that that woman has quite a mind on her. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe I could get her in the hot seat one day. Yeah, yeah but, maybe. Uh, but it but it's not about Michaela Cole. It's about you today. So um, uh, I, I I wanted to ask. I, I I'm curious about um, about any other boy growing up. So you, you you grew up in northern Nigeria. Yeah, until I was twelve. Yeah. Yeah. And what was uh, what was he like? Any other boy? Was it was he a, a creative kid? Like? Yeah, I've always been a sort of creative kid. Um, drawing or writing or any combination or, or just daydreaming and putting things together and making up stories and performing 
um, yeah, I've always been that kid. But all of that I did because it was fun, not because I shouldn't have been doing it, not because I felt like it would lead to anything approaching a yeah. career. Yeah, yeah. So he was quite a creative kid. And you, you ended up in uh, the UK when when you were when you were a teenager. Is that right? Um, yes. No, I, I ended up when I was twelve here. 12. And then moved to Dublin when I was 15 and returned when I was 18. So from 18 onwards, um, um, I've lived here. And, and there was quite a nice story I heard in um, uh, or read in one of your essays about your, your first encounter with a, with a library in London and uh, the incredible world of Terry Pratchett. Yeah, um, I was quite aware of libraries. We just didn't have many in Nigeria that I could access. So uh, my mother took me to one um, in Victoria, where we lived at the time, and um, um, was adamant that I get a library card and and take things um, out of the library um, and in, 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 for instance, at a boarding school that I attended in Nigeria, we had a library, but we couldn't really take the books out. We went there to do homework. But here mm-hmm. we could take the books out. And I just ran through grabbing um, things that I didn't think my mother would let me to take home, which were mostly comic books and graphic novels. And right. um, the thickest book that I, that I could see with the most lewd cover was... Was was belonged to um, a Terry Pratchett novel called Pyramids, which I took home and read, and devoured, and loved, and discovered a whole universe of language and ways of reflecting um, the world, but also Britain itself. And right. um, yeah, that really is where my my life as a reader began, and I guess subsequently my work, my life as a writer. As I understand it, you you only began writing seriously when you were prevented from working because of uh, the 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 question mark over your immigration status, which went on then yeah for a very yeah. long time yeah pretty much I wanted to be a graphic artist a graphic designer but I couldn't afford to go to um, to university because I was classed as a as an overseas student. So I just started reading more from the library and slowly all the words in my head, all the ideas that I couldn't afford to express visually because I couldn't afford art materials suddenly became um, poems or shifts of tide of words which I searched to find a form for and shepherd into meaning. And um, that's how I slowly began to write um, um, poetry, which is i guess to a certain extent all i've done ever since now then i get big ideas and it becomes other things but essentially i I just really want to write poems (laughs) yeah yeah and you've written an extraordinary amount of poems already yeah and 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 each time it's such a a frustrating and fragile fragile medium of communication because you create rules as you are discovering what it is you're writing. It's to question um, the forces that impact on the ability or the the task of riding a bicycle whilst figuring out how to balance at the same time, the question, you know, the bicycle should be a bicycle. Why isn't it a ship or something? And, And that's, and every time I finish writing a poem, and I and I, I begin to think about another one. I have to make up the rules all over again, and I wonder if I can get to the end of it. You just, you're, yeah, it's it's 
it's to be chased by shadows of your own invention, but they also lead you out of the darkness into other darknesses. It's it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a thankless and pointless thing to do, but whilst you're in the grip of it, it feels like the only thing worth doing. And given the the way you describe writing a poem and the way it sort of shifts around you, how, how do you know when a poem is finished? Um, well, poems are never really finished. They are abandoned. Um, either there's a deadline which comes to you and, 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 and you, you abandon it because someone else's schedule um, overrides yours or you create artificial full stops and, and you have to abandon it because, um, um, yeah, there's, there's something else you have to write or something like that. So poems are never really finished. Every time I open an old poem, I keep on poking at it, moving a word here, changing this thing, trying to make sure it sounds as mellifluous as I want it to be or as I hope it will be. Um, um, yeah, so for me, as soon as a poem is published, I can never touch it. And that's that's mm-hmm. my thing because then it's fixed somehow. It's in the world. It's flat. It, it's now exists outside of me. And yeah. I think that's when I stop fooling around with a poem. But up until then, it's all fair game. I keep on, yeah. I keep on, I keep on poking and changing things. So yeah, they're, they're not really, they're never really, really finished. Yeah. yeah. I presume performance is quite important. I, I know it's a, it's a big part of your practice that the, the delivery of a poem to an audience, does that then affect how you may ultimately set it down? Um, to, to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, I started off performing my poems, um, and I still do. I went through a period where that's all I was interested in. Then I was interested, I became interested in writing and just leaving it and letting them others discover it and then inhabit the poem or people the poem with your voice. But performance is still, um, a huge joy to share work directly with the, with the audience. And, and to do what I need to do to make sure that they understand the poem in that one setting, in that one seating, in that listening. And that requires me to think clearer and more, um, um, and to plan more carefully with what I do with my voice, with speed, with pace, with, um, um, with dedication with clarity, with pitch, tone, um, emphasis, all of that stuff. Um, and it's a, and each time I, I do so, I feel as if I'm rediscovering things of the poem when you share it with an audience and how they take the poem in and what they audibly respond to teaches you new things about the poem, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's still, it's still great, but I've written so many poems that when I read before audiences, I never decide what to read. I have this search function inbuilt into the app on my iPad that holds all the poems that I've ever written. So what I do is I ask the audience to give me a word. I type the word into that search function, then read them a poem that has their words. So the, 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 the duration of the performance is only as good as their word choices, and we're in it together. I never right. know what I'm going to read. It's, it's terrifying for me, and it's terrifying for them because they're not sure what they're going to get. You know? um, yeah. it's, a, it's a lovely way of making the 
the experience of the reading uh, uh, sort of a, a dialogue, though, isn't it? A, a sort of a two-way engagement. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I begin to search, and sometimes they give me words that I have never used in a poem, and I begin <laughs> to question why. And there's all this okay. That's um, interesting. hierarchies of language and language and class politics inbuilt into the usage of words, and I begin to question myself. So it always leads on to something else. When it comes to the writing of a poem so I, I i one of my one of my favorite books on the craft of writing is is by stephen king i don't know if you've uh you've um, encountered it's it. called on writing right yeah yeah that's right yeah and it's one says, of my favorite i whenever i'm asked i say yep yeah, read that on writing it's brilliant it's a great book and and the, the lovely sort of uh details of his extraordinary life weaved through it but one, one of the things that stays with me is um he says uh write with the door closed and edits with Rewrite. the door open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you find that um, that resonates with your with, with with your own process? It's 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 um. The, whenever I'm asked about writing, that's the exact quote that I give our approaches to writing. And the only other thing I might add to that is something Lyndon Quasi um, Johnson told me about poetry. He defines poetry as the distillation of human experience through language. And um, when, when, when I'm writing poetry, those are the two things, those are the two quotes that guide me. One, to distill human experience through language, which is, a very, which is quite specific and requires you to consider who you are, what distillation means to you, what humanity means to you. And for me, as an immigrant, as a black man, as an African, that means lots of different things in lots of different spheres in which I exist as a writer, but also echo back and forth constantly through my experience of writing or traveling. Um, and through language also means various things. I'm a child of the hip hop generation. So there's a lot of hip hop references, which, uh, um, which I draw from, which are um, sort of linguistic and musical um, palettes that underpin my tongue, which I try to write with. Um, but language also means a lot when I come from Nigeria and we have pidgin English, which is a broken English. Then we have Nigerian spoken English, which is different from British spoken English, which is different from PR, which is different from Black British vernacular, which is different from African-American vernacular. So all of these swirling clouds of Englishness um, occupy my brain and I draw from them when I write. So it's a really complicated thing for me, but it's joyful seeing how I bounce from space to space. But um, also I write with the door closed, which means that I inhabit all of these spaces as best as I can and try and mm. be as clear and as possible and I write for myself. But um, to borrow from Walt, Whit Walt Whitman, because of all of those things that I've said, I contain multitudes. So writing for myself is sometimes really overwhelming because of the spaces that I inhabit and, and who myself um, are in the numerous um, sort of um, conglomerate of cultures that are always um, pressing on me. I know I'm a child of... Um, um, Terry Pratchett. So I'm a huge fantasist. I'm also a child of Tolkien, but also I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child of like 
early 90s West Coast hip hop. And I'm also in charge of like Nigerian contemporary and classical high life music. So all of those things I, I try and write from with the door closed and then I edit with the door open. And for me, that means that I imagine a complete stranger might walk in and sit beside me and I have to make sure whatever it is I've written, however complex and detailed, makes complete sense to them. And which requires a whole new set of eyes and ways of listening to what it is I've written. Um, and yeah, so that those two things mean a lot to me. There's another quote, um, which I may have to paraphrase because I don't know it exactly, but I think he, I think it was John Carey who said, um, as, as music is to, to noise, so poetry is to language. Mm. There is, there, there is something about the sort of, um, the, uh, well, the, the distillation of language down to those, you know, so every word is working in association with the words that surround it. A- absolutely. There's, yeah. a, the, the, there's a sort of a purity about it. And I think re- reading your work, um, I'm, I'm sort of entranced by the kind of dexterity of the, of the phrasing and the way words are put together. And, and when I first began reading your poetry, I was reading it um, in my head mm. and I stopped and I started making myself read it aloud. And I found that there was something about, uh, you know, working through a poem, saying it aloud, which made it even more, even more immediate. Mm. I'm not sure if this is a question. <laughs> well, more, it's more, just... more just an observation. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you said that because I, I write with that in mind, really. I write for the ear as well as, um, as the mind. I'm, I'm, I come from oral traditions in West Africa where people travel around telling stories and, and the telling of stories is a communal experience. And you had to do everything you can to entertain the audience. So it wasn't about technical brilliance, mm-hmm. um, though that definitely plays a part. But it's, it was mostly about the communal experience and the enjoyment of, 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 of entertaining, of telling a story, of being alive in the moment. So I really tried to beautify the text, even when I'm writing horrible things. Um, 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 it's also something that um, John Keats said, um, um, beauty is truth, truth is beauty. That's all you know mm-hmm. and all you need to know. And that really... Um, um, is represented in how um, I bring orality and oral beautification to the stories and the poems that I write. Now I know that um, that basketball is important to you, and I, yeah. I, I really enjoyed um, the Half God of Rainfall recently. Mm. And, I, and I know also from digging around that you 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 had an English teacher who was also a basketball coach. Yeah. So I wanted to ask: Does writing the pursuit of, of, of writing have anything in common with basketball? Um, abs- well, they did for me, um, which is to do with having a great teacher who just demanded excellence and dedication and, um, and um, brilliance from us and introspection and, and detail from us at all, in all facets of our lives off and on the court from our bodies, from our minds. And, 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 um, it, it came to me that way, but there's also, um, 
similarities for me with the structure of a basketball um, team and and a poem. And I've I've thought um, I've um, I've thought about I've taught this workshop a couple of times. It's called. Um, the anatomy of a poem in which I liken the poem to the body, but also to a basketball team. And I can share it. I can share it with you if you're interested. Love to see it. Yeah. And this is how I I relate writing poetry specifically to basketball. Um, So for for me, the poem is broken into these five things. Um, One is the heart of a poem, which is the topic of the poem. What is it you're trying to say? And in basketball, that is the point guard, who's the one who sort of is, he leads the team. He decides everything. Um, Point two um, on the body is the skeleton, which is the form and the structure of the poem. And um, in basketball, this is the shooting guard. So he sort of supports supports the point guard. Um, point three, you have um, the music, the breath um, of, of, of a poem. And in basketball, for me, this is the small forward. This is the person who sort of fills out the team, scores most of the poems, um, communicates best with the audience, with the team, etc. And by audience, I mean um, um, the auditorium, those who come to watch this. The small forwards tend to be the most um, popular guys on the team. Jordan was okay. a small forward, for instance. And right. then um, you have the flesh, the metaphor of a poem. Um, and in in basketball, for me, this is the power forward. He occupies most of the space. Um, he's he's there supporting um, the breath of the poem. And finally, you have um, the center. In poetry, um, um, this is the spirit of the poem, and this is the most liminal of all poems, this aspect. This is the transformation where somehow the, the equation of language leaps beyond itself and goes somewhere else. And for me, this is the center where you're not quite sure what they do. They're just there. And um, they, they do small little shifts, little stances, which sometimes can throw an opposing team completely off their axes and just throw them into this array. And these are the, these for me, these are the five things that make up a team and also poetry and also basketball. Brilliant. I love that. Um, that's wonderful, and 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 you you've shared that with in in workshops, have you? With, uh, yeah, um, aspiring writers with aspiring writers who now and then aspire writers and basketball fans, and that's where all, <laughs> all my all my worlds come like, together. It just clicks. They go, aha! Now I get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, wonder, they're wonderful. Um, uh, and you, and you've said. Um, You've, you've said that your plays, because you, you, you've written plays as well, your, your plays are poems that, go, that have gone wrong. Yeah, uh, or attempts to write poems, um, and the truth of the poem is better served by um, um, more voices, and then it becomes right. a conversation between poem and poem, and th- those conversations become people, and the worlds of those people become the stages of the context in which the story is set. And, and and it grows further and further. Mm-hmm. The Half God of Rainfall started off that way. It was just supposed to be a poem about um, a basketballer who could do all the things that I couldn't do. But I, as I began to question where his skills might come from, and then if his skills are God-given, um, and, and, and I realized there were percussions of that, 
suddenly the world um, of the character began to deepen and grow and blossom and become intensely more personal and political. And I found ways in which it could represent and mirror conversations we were having with the world. And it took um, eight or nine years to complete that because I had to grow as an individual, as a man, to understand how all of those forces impact on each other and what spaces I could occupy or what things that I could say within this new world. Um, but yeah, I started up as an, as an attempt to write this poem about a really good basketball player. When we, when we think about that work, there's, um, it, it, it resonates with what you said earlier. In, in a, it draws very freely um, from sort of classical mythology and um, uh, Nigerian mythology and contemporary basketball players. It's a, it's a really wonderful and unusual mixture that comes together in this kind of epic poem. I, I Yeah, that's what I kind of set out to do. And I think um, it, it didn't work in my favor. Which, which, and by that, I mean, I'm really proud of the book. And there are readers who love um, the book to death. But when the book yeah. um, came out, there wasn't a single review for the book at all. Um, the stage adaptation got a lot of love. The play got 11 um, 11 four-star reviews, so it was intensely critically acclaimed. People mm-hmm. loved a contemporary play in which Zeus was the villain. Like They'd never really seen that on stage. Um, yeah. But not a single um, mainstream or even um, um, publisher. There wasn't a single book review. I think they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to talk right. about it, so they just didn't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Which, which yeah. kind of... Um, was disappointing. I expected more of the British um, publishing industry, but um, given conversations we've been having <laughs> over since lockdown, um, perhaps I expected too much of them. And, and talking about uh, the British publishing industry and some of the things that have happened, you, you, I, re- I read a quote that you said, um, in Nigeria, you're just a man, but when you came to England, you became a black man. And I, yeah. I, I wondered how you found it navigating what is still predominantly white world of uh, of the arts in the UK? Um, I, I have to acknowledge some of the privilege that I've had in this, and I've only come to, to understand my privileges by talking to other black British writers, mm-hmm. which is that up until I was 12 years old, I grew up in a country in which most of the people looked like me and doors opened up to me when I knocked on them. Or if they didn't open up to me, I didn't think it was because of institutionalized racism. It was just because it wasn't the right time or I was a bit of a nuisance or whatever. So um, up until the age of of I was 12, um, I had black privilege and it was completely intact, which meant that um, the word black wasn't attached to my identity. I was just, I was just a man. It was when I came yeah. over to the UK that I discovered things like institutionalized racism and what it meant to grow up in a world in which you're always considered less than, in which you are perceived as a threat, in which doors were closed to you and um, you always had a dark reason, a shadow following you as the reasons why which meant that you become defensive, a means mm-hmm. that you grow up defensive, you grow up nervous, questioning yourself, your validity, your worth, your agency, all of those things. And, um, and, and 
when I discovered all of that, I just thought it was stupid first and foremostly, and I thought it was ridiculous. And I couldn't yeah. believe that England, for all the riches, for all its reputation, which had been downloaded to me in childhood Nigeria, could harbor such backwards and ridiculous notions. Um, so my first reaction to racism was to laugh at the stupidity of it and not to be aware of the true horrors. And after mm-hmm. three years, I moved to Dublin, where I was the only black boy in the entire school that I that I started schooling in, and where which was and that was the first time the sharp end of racism really came towards me because um, it was everything extreme prejudice to um, prejudice as a result of. Um, ignorance versus malice. Um, and I, I navigated that for three years. And um, when I came back to the UK, I came back tougher and somewhat angrier and understood the Black British experience then. But I also understood how I wasn't Black British because of those 12 incubated glorious years in Africa, in Nigeria, mm. where racism wasn't an everyday experience. It wasn't within my consciousness. And Mm -hmm. then I started writing poetry when I was 18 and did that exclusively, which means that I existed in spaces where the more vulnerable I was and the more poems I wrote from that vulnerability, the more I was applauded in this extremely liberal um, spaces. And a lot of Black men, um, don't grow up in those spaces. And a lot of black men aren't poets in which they are allowed to be entirely themselves and applauded for being vulnerable. There's a lot of hyper-masculinity built into the black British or the, the black Western experience, which can be incredibly toxic and leads to mental health um, problems, which a lot of black men only discover later on in life. So all of those things I, I, I became slowly aware of from a distance because they weren't my experience. And because I lived and work in entirely arts environments, I, mm. I just wrote and created whatever the hell I created um, and then faced the repercussions there um, 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 if, if they came. And I worked constantly in different spaces. So I worked as a graphic designer. I worked as a poet. I worked as a performer. I worked... Um, as a tutor of, of, of creative writing in schools and spaces. And I began to work in theater and work in television and now in film. So whenever one place felt hostile to me, I didn't stop enough for the hostility to crystallize or just move on to the other thing. <laughs> so there's a lot of privilege and mobility, which I built into my work in life. But it's also because I'm an immigrant. My whole formative lives up until the ages age of 18 was constantly moving. And if any place felt a little bit hostile to me, I just shrug it off and go elsewhere. I was never pinned down. I never let my identity be pinned down. I was always constantly evolving and changing. And a lot of um, um, British people, a lot of black British people um, just don't have that much freedom Um, which I'm aware of and which I constantly um, um, use as a um, parachute to jettison out of places that might be hostile to me. And and that sort of freewheeling momentum in your creative output is, is, is very evident. It's um, you, you still, you still um, write and draw as a graphic designer. 
yeah, yeah, I still do. I just illustrated a cover for a student edition of Barbershop Chronicles. Um, I'm going to illustrate all the poems in my book, which will become an art exhibition. I'm in talks with a few galleries about. Um, so yeah, I migrate from one place to, to the other. I also do work as a voiceover artist now. So I just read other people's texts. And then I think one of, um, one of the reasons my voice agent likes working with me is because my accent isn't specific to anywhere. I can sort of be from anywhere right. because it's built of all of those languages that I talked about yeah. before and all of those musicalities and place. Yeah. So yeah. Um, mobility is important to my work is important to my sense of self and to how I operate in the world. Another, uh, I, I, I think this might be episode 21 or 22 of, of, of this series of podcasts. Yeah. Um, I, I begin to see commonalities um, uh, across the people I interview, even if they work in different areas. And, and one of those, I think, is that that there is um, there is often a feeling of kind of outsiderness uh, that, that for, for one reason or another, the person has 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 stepped to the sidelines, or sometimes been forced to the sidelines, or maybe begun on the sidelines, and that that has lent them a perspective. Um, that has fueled their creativity. I was I was a jack of all trades when I was in Holland Park, which is the school I attended in the UK, in London when I was a kid. Which meant that um, I hung around with the athletes because I was quite athletic. I hung around with the basketball um, kids. I hung around in the art class because I was painting and drawing everything. I hung around with the musicians and the singers because my best friend was in the choir, and I hung around. Um, um, with the English kids, and by that I mean the English students who loved language and loved the English homeworks, because I kind of liked doing that as well. I also used to hang around with the goths a little bit, even though I wasn't really a goth. Um, and so I just did a little bit of everything, and I've always been peering at communities and um, and for, from yeah, from a sort of outwards perspective as an outsider looking in, but it's also being a yeah a third culture kid belonging to mm. things momentarily and being able to being able to step outside of it mm. um but also um i remember reading one of terry pratchett's book books again he described this political figure i think his name is lord veterinary i'm not sure if i pronounced that name right but he described um this character having three or four levels of consciousness so he was doing things, for instance, but he was aware of doing those things, then aware okay. that he was aware of doing those things. So he had like three levels of consciousness um, and awareness operating at any one time. And I read it and I discovered that I thought like that all the time. So, so sometimes I find myself reading poetry to an audience. But whilst being entirely in the moment and reading the poem to them, I'm listening to the audience as well. So there's a double consciousness going. But at the same time, I'm, I occupy those spaces um, as an assessor of my audiences, but also an assessor of, as a producer of live literature events as well. So I'm wondering, okay, what is happening at the time? So that, that also occupies... Um, I also operate through the world, so I'm 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 like an outsider, several levels over, several other times, yeah. and from different um, sort of stratus spheres of thinking. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I guess it's a bit like a sort of uh, 
being able to jump between cameras on a scene, you know, exactly, so yeah, different perspectives. Um, we, we, you know, one one of the things I'm uh, impressed by is 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 just you know how how much work you've produced and 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 the way you talk about work in it. Um, it, it, it seems to me, from my own outsider perspective, that you've got this kind of um, creative energy, and I, I, I wonder, do, do you get stuck? Do you do you get blocked? Do you do you get frustrated? Um, do things not go so well sometimes? Um, yeah, sometimes. Um, I've had like a few um, massive projects cancelled because of of lockdown. Um, I've had projects that have been rushed, which didn't um, meet um, healthy conclusions. Sometimes with working with collaborators who just didn't quite get the work I was trying, I was trying to create, um, and that that is the nature of theater, which is um, all about collaboration and trust. Um, mm. But um, it, I, th- I think it's part and parcel of the work of of um, of working as an artist, but, um, I always create because I always have lots of ideas and of of notions and I draw from so much. I watch as much as I can. I read as much as I can. And I read poetry a lot of time, which means that I'm, I'm digesting other people's points of views and other ways of seeing the world, um, Mm -hmm. at, at any, at any one time. Um, so there's, a there's, there, there, the different ways of authoring um, any moment, which which um, underpins my creative mind. So even if I'm writing one thing, I'm aware of other things it can be. And if it doesn't succeed as one thing, I just strip it for spare parts and make it something else. So I'm, I'm I never really have writer's block. I'm just waiting or shifting or recycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and even through the lockdown, like I said, it was impossible for me to write a new poem, but I finally did about two, three weeks ago. But even that time I was writing, um, essays for instance, and I was yeah. writing, um, opinion pieces on, 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 on things. So I was, I was still regurgitating and, yeah. um, and, um, for instance, I began obsessed, obsessively, um, defending, um, and critiquing all conspiracy um, um, theories around um, the coronavirus. To the point, I mean, this WhatsApp group with about 250 um, men, mostly of, of Black and Caribbean descent, all of them actors or directors or performers. And every time someone would post a conspiracy theory, I'd be there on the internet trying to disprove it. So, so that, so for me, that was that was an attempt at creative writing because I'd spend like a few hours researching the internet and I have to distill this down to a message I can put into this group. So even that, there was yeah. a way of, of producing, but all of that fed into this po- final poem that I wrote about COVID-19, which is also the last poem um, in my collection coming out in October. But also um, the poem is about Batman. So I came <laughs> writing this huge pandemic okay. from this really tangential um, comic book um, sort of um, way of looking at the world and looking at hero culture and heroism and responsibility and wealth and power and white privilege, all of which um, Bruce Wayne, Batman um, represents. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
and there is a presumed back connection, isn't there, with uh, with COVID nineteen? Exactly. That was that was that was my in. That was my window in. I thought, okay. okay, through that connection, I can really geek out on being a comic book nerd, but really critique yeah. all of these things that came to the forefront of the global consciousness during lockdown, which is to do with um, um, white privilege and to do with wealth and power and the brown and black people who have suffered greatly from COVID-19 in disproportionate numbers, all of these things um, Batman sort of represents. I can't wait to read it. So it's coming out in the collection in uh, in October, you say? Yeah, it's coming out on the 5th of October. Um, I think you can pre-order it now from Penned in the Margin to one publishers. And the title is The Actual, or the full title is The Actual Fuck. And we had to take fuck out of the title because um, many, many like um, shops won't like list it on their website or whatever. Yeah. 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 I, 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 most people will uh, make it, uh, add the word mentally. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I wondered about your um, about where, about the kind of writer you are. Are you somebody who's who's always got a notebook in their back pocket? Who uh, He's jotting things down, little snippets of conversation. How 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 do you um how, how do you uh, collate your material? Um, I work um, um, analog and digitally as well. So I have a notebook, um, a moleskin, um, where I write a lot of things, notes, ideas down. Um, but I also um, write um, on this um, project management app. That I fell in love with about a decade ago, and I've used and I use it on a daily basis. It's called Things, um, okay. and it exists on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Mac. And I just collate everything there, then sort it out into various into various things. And um, I don't have a PA or anything like that. Um, I have agents, but um, I am my own PA, and um, Things. Is, is the closest thing to a personal assistant that I have. It's a project management software, really. But um, it, um, without, without it, I'd be completely useless. And any one point I have, um, let me open it to check. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Yeah, 26 or 27 things that I'm working on in various um, shapes and forms. Sometimes they are pressing. Sometimes they're just things I need to add something to once a month and become projects which will be realized for another, I don't know, three or four years. But um, yeah, so 26 projects constantly. I'm like always chipping away at. Yeah, bubbling away. And what what are you uh, what are you most looking forward to um, now? Uh, normal life is is beginning to resume. What, what, um, what, what being being in front of an audience again, entertaining. I thought you might say a that. Crowd. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sharing poems, making people laugh, making them yeah. think, making them commune together. I've missed that um, a lot. Yeah. As, as somebody who's normally sitting in the audience, um, I have to say I have a great deal too. I, I can't, I can't wait for my my first post lockdown gig. Yeah. So I, I, I know you've got to head off. Um, uh, so I, I, uh, I have a final question for you. If I were a betting man, 
I would say it's only a matter of time before you end up on Desert Island Discs. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to preempt Lauren Laverne or whoever may be presenting when you when you do end up and ask you if you were to be cast away on, on a desert island and you were to pick one tune and one book Ooh. without thinking about it too hard. And I know you're a man who loves music and literature, so um, forgive me for um, forcing this upon you just before we finish, but um, what would you say? Um, a song called um, Hope, perhaps it's called Hope for a Generation by Fat Freddy's Drop. Okay. Yeah, that, um, I think I'd listen to that. And one book, one book, um, let me see. Ooh, um, oh my God. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, um, there's an, okay. The Art of Looking Sideways. It's a book which is published just about the ways in which visual artists think. And I think I'd like to sit with that for a while and it would probably inspire a million poems. But um, yeah, hope for a generation and the art of looking sideways. I think I'll be stranded with those two things. Brilliant. Um, That's wonderful. Well, um, it's been amazing to talk to you. Thanks, Richard. Um, Thanks for having me. It's a real shame that we're we're not doing it in person. Yeah. a cup of tea. Um, but um, I'm, I'm really grateful for your time. Your um, answers are extremely thoughtful and um, no doubt illuminating and inspiring for people listening. So um, I'm very grateful for your time. And, uh, and I, hopefully um, I'll be sitting in the audience and you'll be um, reading a poem on the stage before, uh, before, before too long. Before too long, yeah, hopefully. Um, thanks, thanks so much for, for um, inviting me to do this. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Richard. So there we are, Inuit Elums. I've spoken to very few people in my life who have such an extraordinary way with words. Find out more about Inuit at his website, inuitelums.com, and his next collection, The Actual, is also available for pre-order. I think it comes out in October. So this was the 21st episode of The Wind Thief Hat. I can't quite believe we've made it to 21. I have to tell you, it's quite a lot of work to keep this particular show on the road, but it is your generous reviews and the messages I receive from listeners now and again, which keep me going. They they really do sustain me. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, please do let people know about it and um, and leave a review. It was a real privilege to to chat to Inua today and um And it's a conversation I won't forget. Thank you very much for all your support. I'll catch you next time. Goodbye.